0: Hey, y'all, we're rerunning two episodes today. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to This Day in History class, where we reveal a new piece of history every day. The day was March 20th, 1928. Fred McFeely Rogers was born in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. He would go on to become a minister, composer, producer, and writer. But Rogers was best known as the soft-spoken, neighborly host of the children's television show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. His work on the show and as an advocate for educational television would earn him a Presidential Medal of Freedom, a Peabody Award, and a spot in the Television Hall of Fame. Fred's mother, Nancy Rogers, did hospital volunteer work, his father, James, was president of the McFeely Brick Company. Fred liked Latrobe, and he would later base his television neighborhood on the city. But as a child, he was introverted, isolated, and teased for being overweight. His asthma was so severe that he was often stuck inside the house. But by the time he got to high school, he was more outgoing. After graduating, he attended Dartmouth College for a bit, then transferred to Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, where he got his bachelor's degree in music composition in 1951. When he graduated, he started working at NBC in New York as an assistant producer, then as a floor director. In 1952, he married his wife, Joanne Byrd. And in 1953, he headed back to Pennsylvania to work as a program developer for the public television station WQED in Pittsburgh. It was there that he started producing The Children's Corner, a live, daily, hour-long program on which he worked as a puppeteer, organist, and composer. The puppet characters that he created for this show, like King Friday, Henrietta, and Daniel the Striped Tiger, would live on in his later work. While at WQED, Rogers graduated from the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary and was ordained as a Presbyterian minister. He also attended the University of Pittsburgh's Graduate School of Child Development, where he began working with child psychologist Margaret McFarland, which turned into a lifelong friendship and professional relationship. But his first foray in front of the camera came in 1963, when he developed a children's program called Mr. Rogers for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in Toronto and took the helm as host. Rogers took the 15-minute show with him when he went back to WQED in 1966, where the show became Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. A couple of years later, National Education Television began distributing the show nationally. And finally, in 1970, it reached its final form as Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood on PBS, where it ran for more than 900 episodes. The show was pretty simple. It was a half-hour children's program aimed at preschool ages that featured Rogers as the kind, warm host with two main locations, Mr. Rogers' house and the neighborhood of make-believe. He would have conversations with viewers, take field trips and demonstrate how objects work. The show wasn't as flashy or fast-paced as other children's programs began becoming over the years it was on air. And it taught children lessons about fear, anger, death, divorce, empathy, and even heavy social issues like war and racism. The show grew a huge and enthusiastic fan base before it ended in 2001. There were instances behind the scenes where Rogers seemed to lean toward controlling, like the time he wanted a reshoot because popcorn spilled over and could scare the kids watching. But authenticity and honesty were character traits that he spoke highly of. He once told Newsweek, One of the greatest gifts you can give anybody is the gift of your honest self. I also believe that kids can spot a phony a mile away. Rogers was a Republican and a Christian, but he never really talked about his religious or political views on air. However, he was vocal about the value of social and emotional education for kids. He once said the following, Anything that we can do to help foster the intellect and spirit and emotional growth of our fellow human beings, that is our job. Those of us who have this particular vision must continue against all odds. Life is for service." So his dedication to children's education extended beyond Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and the television screen. In 1969, he testified before the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Communications in support of quality children's television and funding for PBS and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. After the hearing, PBS did get a lot of additional federal money. And after 9 11, Rogers put out PSAs on how parents can talk about tragedies with their children. For a short time, Rogers hosted an interview show for adults on PBS, and he wrote hundreds of songs and wrote many books for children and adults. But the name Mr. Rogers is synonymous with children's television. His marriage of personal values with academic integrity left a significant impression on educational media and American culture. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you're interested in learning more about Fred Rogers' life and everything that he was into, you should check out the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor?, that came out in 2018, But be prepared, because it is a tearjerker and a huge heartwarmer. If there's something that I missed in an episode, you can share it with everybody else on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at TDIHCPodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back tomorrow for more delicious morsels of history. Hey y'all, it's Eves, and welcome to another episode of This Day in History class. Like a lot of other people around the world right now, I am at home because of the coronavirus, but This Day in History class, fortunately, can still go on because I can record from home, so that's where I am, in my closet, bringing you another episode of the podcast. So, on with the show. The day was March 20, 1924. The U.S. State of Virginia approved an act that subjected people in state institutions to sterilization. The Virginia Sterilization Act was implemented during the height of the eugenics movement in the U.S. Eugenics is the practice of selective breeding in human populations with the goal of improving the genetics of future generations. The practice is rooted in prejudices such as racism, classism, and ableism. British scientist Francis Galton coined the term eugenics in 1883 in his book, *Inquiries into Human Faculty and Its Development. He advocated creating what he believed would be a better human race by encouraging people he deemed healthy and of high intelligence to have children together. The eugenics movement spread quickly across Europe and the United States in the early 20th century. Laws prohibiting people with physical and mental disabilities from marrying popped up around the U.S., and eugenics supporters promoted the idea that the practice would help maintain the purity of the American, in other words, Anglo-Saxon white, race. The American Breeders Association was formed in 1903 and played a big role in uplifting the eugenics movement. Then there was the Race Betterment Foundation, founded by John Harvey Kellogg of Kellogg's serial fame. U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt even warned white people that they would commit, quote, race suicide if they did not have large families, since immigrants and other non-white people were having babies at higher rates. The Eugenics Record Office was established in New York in 1910, with Harry Laughlin as the first director. The office was particularly concerned with the inheritance of so-called undesirable traits, such as mental disability and promiscuity. After World War I, Eugenics supporters began to believe that the U.S.'s economic and political strength would suffer if more people with undesirable traits lived in America. While states had already passed sterilization acts based on eugenics, sterilization laws became more common after Laughlin drafted the Model Sterilization Law, which was published in his book, Eugenical Sterilization in the United States in 1922. In the book, he promoted forced sterilization under the guise of bettering humanity. Laughlin banked on state legislatures designing their own eugenics laws based on his recommendations. Albert Pretty was the superintendent of the Virginia Colony for the Epileptic and Feeble Minded in Lynchburg, Virginia. Pretty was a huge supporter of institutionalizing people deemed feeble minded and compulsory sterilization. He contacted legislator Aubrey Strode, who drafted Virginia's Eugenical Sterilization Act. Though the courts had struck down many states' sterilization laws, Virginia Governor Albert Lee Trinkle promoted the sterilization bill as a way for institutions that housed so called defective people to save money. Compulsory sterilization would also mean that people could not leave institutions and have more people eugenic supporters deemed defective. In the bill, Strode said that sterilization was a public health concern and necessary to protect society. The bill said that sterilization would be a safe and relatively painless procedure. It stated that heredity played a big role in the quote transmission of sanity, idiocy, imbecility, epilepsy, and crime. The Virginia Sterilization Act was approved on March 20, 1924, providing for people in state institutions to be sterilized in certain cases. Carrie Buck was set to be sterilized under the Virginia Act. Buck's case made it to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled that it was in the state's best interest to have Buck sterilized so that the nation would not be, quote, swamped with incompetence. The ruling legitimized sterilization and boosted the eugenics movement across the United States. Thousands of Virginians were sterilized, mainly non-white and poor white people, after the act was passed. Major parts of the 1924 act were repealed in 1974. In 2015, Virginia agreed to pay sterilization survivors $25,000 each as compensation. Reportedly, only 11 survivors of forced sterilization in Virginia were identified at the time. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you'd like to hit us up on social media, you can do so on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at T D I H C Podcast. If you prefer to hit us up by email, you can shoot us a note at, this day at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.